We've been in James 2 for a while, and today we're going to finish up James 2 and then head into uh, James 3 next month, um, looking at some really interesting concepts of wisdom and what it means for God's wisdom to be, to be our wisdom. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, but does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, Thank you. You have faith and I have works. Someone will say, Thank you. (laughs) That was great. Someone will say, Thank you. My text doesn't say that. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, want to be no, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, when I was in college, I worked for a construction company. We did all kinds of different projects, and uh, we were—I was overseeing the construction of an addition onto a house. Right. Um, so it was it was a it was a small addition, and it wasn't a very big. Couple of rooms, just getting some more room in their home, and. Uh, this is in the fall of the year, and we got a new employee. And this new employee, my boss said, a new carpenter is going to be joining your going to be joining your crew, which is good because I could use another carpenter. And you know, when when you hire a new employee, um, it's always interesting to see how things are going to work out, right? Well, I had um, I talked. Th- this guy showed up on the job, and uh, I talked to him about his experience, and he had some experience uh, for about I don't know eight or ten years. Um, said he knew pretty much the basics of how to frame any kind of residential, you know, building. And so he, uh, he, he I said, you know how to cut rafters, right? Because we had another supply drop that was coming at another job, and I needed to be there in order to oversee and make sure all the materials that came to that job, and then I would come back. But I didn't want to leave this guy and the laborer with nothing to do. And so I said, you know how to cut rafters, and he said, yeah. So I showed him the layout. It was a 612 roof and all these different things. And this is what we're looking for. Get your show rafter up. And then, you know, we'll, uh, uh, see, how, you know, we'll see how far you get then from there. And it would, you can learn a lot of things if you leave a guy alone on a job. Um, right? it's, a, it's a good way to figure out capacity at this point. This guy really knew his carpentry as far as, like, when I left, I was convinced this guy was a carpenter. Like I, it just... I mean, he, he, he talked really well. He knew the lingo. He had, he had, another thing to do is you look at a guy's tools. If a dude's got new tools, careful. 
you know, his tools should be beat up. His tools should look like they've gone through, you know, he should not be wearing new boots, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, like you, you look, th- this guy checked out from all of the, both the verbal and nonverbal things. So I went to the other job. I was over there. The materials to drop was wrong. Uh, we didn't get enough of something or whatever. So I corrected that. I was gone for a good two hours. I was supposed to be gone for maybe 45 minutes or an hour. So we got all of our materials squared away over there. It's gone for two hours. I came back. The guy didn't even have one side of the show rafter done yet. It had been two hours. He could have, I mean, it was just a 612 roof. It's a very simple cut if you know how to make rafters, right? Um, and, and he had, been, in the meantime, been, like, setting up sawhorses and things like that. We didn't work with sawhorses. We worked on the wood pile itself. You move faster when you do that, you know? Like, there were all these basic things. He couldn't figure out how to get the pneumatic line into the air gun, and it was things like that. And so I just said, and I just sort of like, so you're a carpenter, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and he talked really well, and it seemed like it, and, and it turned out that the guy wasn't a carpenter. He'd been around construction sites a lot, but he hadn't had a job in like two years, and he needed to make a wage, and we had, we had put out an advertisement that we were looking for a carpenter, so he just told us that we were a carpenter, right? He'd been a laborer, which is how he learned lingo, and he had tools that looked like he knew what he was doing, but he wasn't a carpenter in the long run, right? He was a laborer. So I said, look, you know, here's your options. Uh, you can either make the wage that we told we were going, I'm sorry, you can either make no wage at all <laughs> or, or you can make the wage for a laborer. We'll treat you like a laborer and I'll show you how to cut rafters. You know, and he, was, he apologized up one side and down the other and, and, and everything was fine. This was a lesson for me, right? This is one of, those, one of the interesting lessons that just because somebody can talk something well doesn't mean that they can actually execute it in real time, Right? Just because somebody has a presentation of being able to know something and to do something, just because there's a lot of head knowledge, does not necessarily mean that they are that in real life. Right? The way that a carpenter can prove that he's actually a carpenter is by doing carpentry well. Does that make sense? I mean, think about it in any, on all of your lines of work. You know, think about it in school. If you're in school, if you call yourself a freshman in high school, but you still can't do basic math, you know, basic arithmetic, then you're not a freshman, at least not when it comes to, to math in that situation. We got to catch up. We got to learn. There's nothing wrong with anybody here, right? It's just that who you project yourself to be is not lining up. Your works can't support what it is that you say. This is what James is getting at, right? This is what James is getting at here in James chapter 2. How could the declaration that this man was a carpenter, how could that have been a justified, true statement by if he actually did carpentry, right? Right? His work of carpentry would justify his statement of what he said he knew, right? It would declare it right. This is what I can do. Show me. Okay, what you have declared has now been justified. What you said was right about you has been your your works justified that claim. Everybody with me? All right. This word justification is a big word in the New Testament. You know, this is one of the main rubs when it comes to the book of James if you think about the New Testament from a compartmentalized standpoint. In other words, if you think that Paul believes something differently than James does, than James does, if you think that how the Apostle Paul talks about sanctification and justification is very, very different, this is one of the texts that you would go to to try and prove that. 
um, is, that, is that Paul believes in justification by grace. James believes in justification by works. Um, that you can work your way and how it is that you, eter- that you earn eternal life or that you get to go to heaven is if you work hard and prove it. Right? And Paul says, no, 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 it's all grace. It's all grace. You don't have to do anything. Uh, justification is by grace through faith. These two things do not have to be held in tension. Right? These two things do not have to be held in tension if we can understand where the two writers are coming from. Right? Now, James has spent some time in his book so far talking a lot about faith, specifically talking about faith without works. He describes faith without works as four things. It's useless, it cannot save, it is ineffective, and it is dead. Right? Let's read these four things together. Is useless, it cannot save, is ineffective, and is dead. Right? Just like my rafters. Right? The rafters that weren't up there when I got back were useless. They did not save anyone from getting wet by putting a roof on them. Right? They were very ineffective in that they did not exist. And therefore, the activity of the rafter to hold up the sheeting that holds on the shingles was dead. Right? Everybody got it? So not, not only do we as people have to be very aware of walking by faith, which the scriptures call us to all the time, but it's important that we walk by a living faith, right? A, a living faith. James juxtaposes these two things. This isn't just about walking by faith. This is walking in a faith that's alive. This is walking in a faith that is effective. This is walking in a faith that saves. This is walking in a faith that is useful. This is walking in a faith that works. And where James draws us to is to this idea and this concept of justification at the end of his text, right? Verse 23, you see that, 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, that's Abraham. Actually, you know, let's go ahead and start in 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, it would be easy in this situation now to cross over into concepts of self-justification. We want to avoid that. If you remember, a uh, teacher, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment in, 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 in the law? And this is Luke's account of this question. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, this jives with what we've learned from James so far, right? Because James is a second commandment book. James is concerned with the second commandment, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. James is assuming that you love God And that the way that it is shown that you love God is that you love your neighbor. Your claim to love God is justified by your work of loving others. Right? Now, interestingly, 
Look at how this lawyer responds. This lawyer, now, Jesus has just told him, this is how to inherit eternal life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you've said to him, you've, and he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Next verse. But he, the lawyer, desiring to what? To justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus launched into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? When basically he says, the people that you hate the most, and yet you think are the dirtiest and nastiest around you, those are your neighbor. And those are the ones that you need to love. Right? So... The lawyer here finds himself stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? He is, he is stuck between what he has said and how it is that he actually wants to live. Right? Between his claims to being something and then his own tension in his own heart about what it means for him to actually be that in the world in which he lives. Jesus uses this phrase of justification in multiple times and in multiple ways. We'll look at those things. Justified by faith, justified by works. Justified by faith, justified by works. This is what we can see if we take the New Testament as a whole. Right? That we are justified by faith. We are declared righteous by grace through faith. You've been saved, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That declaration of who you are in Christ, that, that, that reception, that, that gift from God of him declaring you righteous, which is what justification is, has saved you. It has brought you life. And now you claim to be someone, right? Because salvation is not for fire insurance. Salvation is not just to keep you out of hell, right? Salvation is to make you something. Next verse, for we are his workmanship. Crafted beforehand to walk in what? In good works. You know, this is worth it. Go, go there. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul starts off Ephesians 2 by talking about how desperately we need God. How much our sin has wrecked us before him. And then he leads us into the idea of being saved from this death. Being saved from people who are dead in our trespasses and sins. For by grace, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? So here, Paul himself is linking these things. Right? That there is a justification that happens by work. There's a justification that happens by grace completely apart from anything that you and I can do. There is a justification that happens by works whereby you are justified, you are declared that which you say you are. Judgment is another way to think of this. Like that there is a separation. I am a carpenter, but you can't carpenter. Right? I'm a child of God, but I don't love my neighbor. James says that doesn't work. That's useless. So you are not justified in your declaration of who you are. You are not justified in your reception of what you say God gave you. Absolutely not, because it's not there. We'll see this again in 1 John when we get there in like, I don't know, 2019 apparently. So, and, and 1 John draws it even more blatantly because he's not just talking about works there. Now he talks specifically about love and hate. 
I mean, he goes right after, not just like your works toward your, brother, toward your brothers and sisters, he goes straight after your heart toward your brothers and sisters. Ooh, man, I'm getting more excited about First John. Let's keep going. Get, go back to James. In James, we see a chain work itself out in these, in these verses from 14 down through 26. There's an assumed question, like what good is faith? What, what good is faith? Uh, not, not like, is it any good, but like, is it useful? Is it effective, right? James tells us that even demons say that they believe. You know, so we can all sit here all day long and talk about how good of a carpenter we are. We can all sit here all day long and talk about how much we believe in God. I mean, maybe you have coworkers or friends or family members like this who, who they're, they're, they, they say, you know, man, if it wasn't for God, I could never have gotten through that. I sure do believe in God. But then when you look at their life to see the transformation that would come from a faith that works and is active in God, you're, you're, you're looking at something else. Right? So uh, we can all sit here till we're blue in the face and talk and say how much we believe in God. And James draws a stark parallel for us. I mean, even the evil ones believe in God, right? Remember, James is going after like the Jewish statement here. Even the demons believe that God is one, which is the Shema, right? The creed. But James rewrites the creed. Right? James now makes the creed what Jesus said the new creed is. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Even the demons have, have you know, talk about how they believe in God. But that's not a faith that works. This faith, that faith of just talking, that faith of just saying something, that faith of just basic mental assent, that's not faith that justifies. If you want to see a faith that justifies, look at Abraham. Or look at Rahab. These two are the examples that James gives us for a faith that does justify. Faith like Abraham, faith like Rahab. Look at that. Look at what Abraham did. Abraham believed in God. Verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from the Old Testament. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. That what Abraham did, the way that he lived his life was in so in line with what his heart believed and yes, what his mouth believed in sacrificing his son Isaac, that that faith justified who he said he was. Right? I am a believer in God. Right? I believe that God has a destiny for me. I believe that what God has said he's going to do. God said he's going to make me a great nation. I believe that. Abraham, go kill your only son. Go kill any ability that you're going to have to ever be made into a great nation, let alone the whole act of killing your own son. Abraham obeys and is walking in such faith that he actually says to the servants, the boy and I are going to go up on the mountain. And when the boy and I return, right, he's, he, there's an assumption that we're going up and we're both coming back down. Right? Abraham is walking in faith. Right? And remember, he doesn't, it's not a faith that's based on writings. It's, it's not a, based, a faith that's based on anything other than his own experience of God and who God revealed himself to be. Rahab, completely out of the blue, you know, just completely chooses to follow God by hiding the spies. These spies come to her, to this prostitute's house to hide, and sh she hides them because she's heard about their God. She's just heard whispers on the wind that their God is mighty and powerful and everything falls before him. And she's heard these things, and these things work in her to the point where she chooses to work a faith 
based on what she has chosen to say she believes. Right? If she had just said to the spies, oh, your God is great, and, and he's the most powerful God that we know, and he's killed everybody, and I don't want it to be in that. You know, well, you, you, you can hide here. You'll be safe. Then the dudes come to the door. Yeah, they're upstairs under the flax. That's not a faith that works. Right? That's not a faith that works. That's a phony faith. Right? That's a faith that actually says one thing and does another, which we find ourselves in all the time. Right? We are looking for a faith that justifies, that declares that who we say that we are is real. Right? This is a faith that justifies. Um, oh, I have some nice pictures for you. Rahab and Moses. That's not Moses. That's Abraham. Okay. This idea of faith working, this idea of justification by works, that who you say you are being justified by your life, and that being an effective faith, an active faith, a real faith, a true faith, like this isn't just a James 2 thing. We can find this many places in the New Testament and the Old Testament. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have now all, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? These are some strong words from the Apostle Paul, the great de- declarer of the justifier, uh, you know, by grace, through faith, not of works. Paul is all about your works matching up. Paul is all about the idea of what you say that you are actually taking root and being active in your life. That it's not enough for you to just mentally assent to something. Oh, God is one. But that it actually requires obedience and a walk in your life, working out your salvation. In other words, taking the salvation that God has given you, his declaration of righteousness upon you, and then walking out that justification in your own life, justifying your own declaration of who it is that you say that you are and that you belong to. This toil, this work of sanctification, this work of holiness, this work of loving your neighbor as you love yourself, this is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul calls us to this, to a faith that is active and that is toiling and that is moving forward. The book of Amos Right? Which, interestingly, the Old Testament prophet Amos parallels the book of James. Uh, first Sunday in September, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, our friend, uh, one, one of our friends from uh, Parker Ford Church, his name is Josh Bitework. You've heard Josh teach now and again, possibly. Um, Josh is my, my favorite Old Testament scholar. I mean, the guy just so, so incredible, especially with prophets. And Josh is going to come and bring a teaching that parallels the book of Amos with the book of James. It's, it's wild stuff. Really, really cool. Um, anyway, Amos says this. This is God speaking to his people. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animal, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. The people of God are off, right? They are saying we're the people of God and they are worshiping idols, idols that go to the point of requiring the sacrifice of their own children, 
right? We are the people of God. There is no justification in that statement. You can't look at the nation of Israel in Amos 5 here and go, oh, those are the people of God. Uh, you can, how do you know? Well, well, they say so. Well, the guy said he could build rafters, right? Well, they say so. I mean, we're all aware of the fact that how someone lives, how they actually are in real time in their real life is so much more important than what comes out of their mouth, right? So there is no justification here. What does God call for? What does God call for? He calls in place of their worship services that he's sick of. He, he despises their worship services. Don't play your instruments. Don't bring me your offerings. What I want to see is justice and righteousness. And there are no more active concepts in the Old Testament than those two. Right? Justice is an active embrace and movement toward aligning ourselves with how God thinks about right and wrong. Righteousness means here is wrong, here is right. You go with right. Right? The people of God are going with wrong. The people of God are living in injustice. The people of God are living in oppression, hurting people. Right? These are active statements that he calls them to. I don't want your worship. Take your worship. Put it away. Show me your worship. Let justice and righteousness flow from you. Jesus says it. He calls, I'm sorry, John the Baptist says it. John the Baptist calls in his sermon to the people of God saying, bear fruit keeping with repentance. Repentance is change. The, the basic word for it, repentance is change. You say you've changed, we'll see fruit of change. Peter says it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. If I walked up to you and said, how is your soul made pure? What would you say? The blood of Jesus. Right? That's what I'd say. You walk up, my, that'd be my, my, initial, my initial gut response. How's your soul made pure? The blood of Jesus. What does Peter say makes your soul pure here? You. Interesting. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, what? Brotherly love. Second commandment. All right, lining right up with this justified by works thing from James. Love one another earnestly. From what? A pure heart. How's your heart made pure? By your obedience to the truth. Right? For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Right? First Peter. Again, we see this idea. This idea of works justifying your claims for who you are. Of being a faith that works, that is not useless. A faith that is true. That if you say you're a child of God, we will live as a child of God. Jesus says this, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For your words will be justified and by your for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned what he's saying there is not just say the right thing what he's saying is if you said it then there needs to be fruit for it 
That will be justification for your words. If you said it and there's not fruit for it, then guess what there is? Then there's condemnation. I mean, Jesus uses this word specifically, itself, justified. Right? There is two trees. Right? There's a bad tree, bad fruit, good tree, good fruit. We're called to be the good tree with good fruit. So if you store up good treasure in your heart, that it will produce good fruit in your life. This is, he gets there again in John chapter 15, right? My father prunes, right? He cuts away the one, the, the, the branches that don't bear fruit. But the ones that remain in me and I remain in them, they will bear much fruit, right? This is, this is the basic understanding that we can see in the whole of the New Testament for what it means for you and I to be fully justified, Right? Absolutely, your salvation, your justification comes directly from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And your justification for the claim to be who you say you are is justified by how you live your life. And James goes so far, and Paul goes so far, and Peter goes so far as to say that if there is not the fruit, then what are we to think other than the tree is bad? Right? Goes back and forth like this. This faith, faith that works, was counted to Abraham as righteousness, right? This active faith, the kind of faith that Abraham reveals and shows in his own life is counted to him as righteousness. Your faith, faith that works, is counted to you as righteousness, right? It justifies who you say you are. Everybody got it? All right, I'm done my sermon. I'm not joking, but I'm not done talking. All right, so here's the thing. I've heard dozens of messages like the one I, I just gave you. Everything I just said is true, right? I believe everything I just said. I think I just exegeted the text well. I worked up good definitions. I gave you a good illustration to understand it. Good homiletics. If I was in seminary right now, I'd get an A. At least I better. All right. <laughs> That was, that was terrible. I shouldn't. That was very egotistical. Um, don't, don't do that. It's cool. All right. I've heard dozens of sermons. Everything I just said is true. I think I handled the text well. If you don't think I handled the text well, that's cool. Great. Okay. Um, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Is that every sermon has a context, right? Every sermon has a context. And sometimes that context can work for you. And sometimes that context can work against you, right? So if this room <clears throat> was full of Pharisees, like if, they, if this was just a bunch of Pharisees that came together who were oppressive and power-hungry and mean to each other and thought that they knew everything but went out of these gates and were just were extorting money from their businesses and, you know, saying all the right thing in church, doing everything out there, my sermon would be, received a certain way, right? It would, be, it would be, there's a context for it. And I would tell, I mean, I would, I would have preached a heck of a lot harder than I did today, right? If this place was full of, of you know, if I was in India with the lepers and, and children who have been orphaned, you know, by the typhoon that just hit and those sorts of things, um, you know, I would be very careful about how I brought this because the con every sermon has a context, right? And I understand that. The thing about, the American church, the thing about just 
and because I'm here with you today, the thing about Cornerstone and the people that we're here together, and I serve as one of your pastors, you serve as, as, as the people of God that have come together in this local church, all of your context for what I just said are up for grabs. And I want you to know that I hear that and I understand that. Some of you are like, I have been told to work my whole life, Jay, and this feels really heavy right now. Please don't bear me with that burden. Others of you are here, right, having come from a context of something completely different, where maybe you actually are in a spot of you can't even justify yourself to yourself. You know, where there is sin in your life or brokenness or wounding in your life that has risen to such a point that you don't know who you are. What you know is that you live your life and one day you say one thing, another day you say the next, and you're really honestly trying like to do what it is that God wants you to do. There's just so much noise. There's so much emotional noise. There's so much spiritual noise that you can't make sense out of who you actually are one day to the next. All right, these words from James can be condemning, these words from James can be comforting. These words from James can bring definition. These words from James can bring more confusion. I get that. Like, I, I understand that. When, um, 15 years ago, if I had heard this sermon, would have been very different than if I heard this sermon today. Does that make sense? Does everyone understand what I'm saying to you? What's important for you is to understand that God loves you for who you are. And wherever you are today, he wants to deliver this word to you in a way that it takes root in your heart and bears good fruit in your life. That, that is his heart for you. And so if what the Holy Spirit is doing in your own life, in your own heart, in your own experience of this word from James 2, that who you say you are had better match up with it, if what you're feeling is conviction, let it be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If what you're feeling is condemnation because your whole life you've been told that you're worthless and the only way that God's ever going to love you is if you work harder for him, then you need to shake that off because that's not the word of the Lord. Right? If what you're hearing this morning is that this faith and justification thing that, I'm, that you're trying to walk in is bringing some clarity to who it is that you say that you are with this group of people, or who it is that you say that you are when you are at school or at work. Or who it is that you say you are versus who you actually are when you're alone and by yourself. But if what you're finding are conflicts between these different pieces of you that you bring to your life, you need to let God speak to that. Because God would have you not live fragmented. God wants you to live whole. God wants you to bring the pieces of your story, all the pieces of your story, all the pieces of where you are and what it is that you're walking through to him where you are now and let him instruct you what it means for you to live a faith that is alive and a faith that is active. Does this make sense? You folks have heard me talk about this before. Um, but, uh, and I'm just going to summarize it rather than go to the text. I'll just tell you the story. Um, I mean, yeah, you hear this from me a lot, and I'm going to keep saying it a lot because it's that important. Um, there, is, there are two lost sons, right? Two lost sons when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And these boys, one comes to him, the younger comes to him and says, Father, give me my inheritance. The older one stays home 
and actually witnesses all of this. He actually witnesses the pain of the father. He actually witnesses the offense that the younger son commits to his father. He actually walks it out in real time with dad. When the younger son leaves, that takes away another somebody to work on the farm. I'm sure he picks up a lot of slack. He's working this whole time. You know, rumors come back. Where's, where's the younger brother? Oh, I heard that he was just living it up with dad's money. You know, prostitutes and, and food and, and drink and all kinds of wild living and, and wonderful things. And this boy's at home working and working and working, keeping the farm together with dad, right? The younger son actually ends up losing everything. He, he, he destroys it all and runs out of money. He doesn't have any place to go. He finds himself homeless. He doesn't even have anything to eat, right? And so he finds himself with nowhere, no place to go. So what does he do? A Jewish boy ends up feeding pigs. How offensive is that? Right? So he's feeding the pigs. He's looking at the stuff. He even thinks, man, I, I don't even have anything to eat. Maybe I'll eat what it is that the pigs eat. And then, boom, how many of my father's servants have three meals a day and something to do with their time that produces something in their lives? I'm going to get up and go home. I'm going to tell my father to hire me. I'm going to tell him, I, yeah, look, I, I understand. I blew it. I can't be your son anymore. Just hire me. You can be my boss. I'll be your employee. Right? Now, this whole time, while all this is working, the older son is working, and he's working, and he's working. Right? The older son has this declaration of, I am my father's son. Is he proving that outwardly? Yes. Right? I mean, in the story, comparatively speak, comparatively speaking, he is proving this. Right? He is at home. He did not disrespect his father. He did not declare his need for, for the inheritance. He stayed and he worked, and he worked, and he worked. Who he said he is, is justified in his works. Justified in his works, right? Do you love and support your father, elder son? Yes. And you can look at his life and go, yes. You go find the younger son sitting in the pigsty. Do you love and support your father? Yes. I saw what you did. I saw how you treated him. I saw how you asked for him to die early so you could have his money. Not, I mean, figuratively, but still, it was painful, don't you think? I saw how you wasted everything that he gave you. I see where you're at now, feeding unclean animals and nothing to eat. And now you've hatched this little plan to go back. You know what your dad should do to you if he goes back? I could talk to you for the next hour about what he should do to you if you go back. Right? In the midst of all of this is the father who is at home, who apparently is looking down the road pretty often, even though his son's been gone for a while, because he looks down the road and he can still see that that is his boy. He can see that the person walking has the same gait, you know, has the same basic form. And he goes out and he meets him. And the son launches into his proposal. Dad, just divorce me. D completely write me out of the family. But in your grace, if you could just let me work for you, I will work. The father doesn't even acknowledge him, right? Doesn't, or, or acknowledges him, but not his plan. Doesn't even acknowledge his words. I mean, if you look at the text, it's just not even there. Bring the fattened calf, bring the ring, bring the robe. My son, I thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Like, it is time to throw a party. Kill the fattened calf. Get all the neighbors together. We are going to live it up because my joy has been fulfilled. Because my son, who was dead, is now come home. Right? And the son is just sort of caught up 
in this whirlwind of love, right? I mean, he's got this whole situation lined out. He's going to try and talk dad into something, and boom, just before he knows it, more than he could ever imagine he is receiving. If you showed up to that party and walked in that party and said to the younger son, do you love and support your dad? Would you even need to ask the question, right? Or do you just walk in and hear the music and see the people and see the food? And who's this party for? This party's for him. This party's for the master's youngest son. I mean, there's an automatic assumption then at that point that, man, the father is delighted in this son. The father is crazy about this son. There's no question about whether or not the son and his father are connected. Look at the fruit of what's going on in this home. The party's happening and everything's going crazy and nuts and whatnot. The older son's been doing what the older son does. He's out in the field and he's working and he gets near the house and he's hearing the music, you know, and and the DJ's thumping and the food is flowing and it's just, it's great, you know, and he's getting near. What's going on, he says to one of the servants. Wow, you should have been here earlier. Your brother, the one that went away forever, we thought he might be dead. He showed up. Your father was beside himself with joy. He thought that he might be dead, but now he's come back. And your father's throwing a party for him because he returned. Now remember, has the elder son been loving and supporting his father? Does he know his dad? The the elder son gets gets angry, right? Father comes out and he says, why don't you come into my party? Why don't you step into my joy? And the older son loses it on him. All these years I've been with you. All these years, note, all these years I've worked for you. And you never even killed a young goat for me. You never even gave a mini party. And this son, who disrespected you like that, and took your stuff and went off and wasted it and has not been working and not been doing anything, he now comes back and you killed a fattened calf for him? I've never even had a young goat to have a party with some of my friends, and now you do this? Right? I mean, he's just consumed with anger and condemnation and judgment. And now at this part, you have seen the father's heart, right? We've seen dad's heart. The younger son came back. The offense was deep and horrible, and the father's heart shows up. What is it? Generosity, goodness, and forgiveness. That's the father's heart. And here we have the elder son again. Does the father know, support, and understand? Does the elder son know, support, and understand his father now? Heavens, no. No. The gulf between elder son and father's heart is far and wide. And the father pleads with his son. The most amazing phrase. Way, way. I mean, just blow your mind. Stuff here. Son. You are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Come in to my joy. And all that we know is that the elder son was left there. The younger son got caught up in the whirlwind of God's love, just blown away by it. So that whether or not father and son were connected, it wasn't even a question because the party was so big. 
I mean, the works were so evident. The fruit was so there. From the good tree comes good fruit. From the bad tree comes bad fruit. Here we see another boy who is bitter and angry and separated and judgmental and condemning. Note something. Both boys have the wrong view of dad. Both want him to be their employer. Right? The younger son, his plan is, Dad, I'll just work for you. The older son, Dad, I've been working for you. And this whole James 2 faith justify or faith justified by works thing, this so easily becomes that junk of work, work harder. God is your boss, God's your employee. He's keeping track. Right? He's keeping track of what you do. He's seeing how you perform well. He's seeing how you don't perform well. And he is measuring out his love for you based on how you perform or do not perform. Right? That is not what James is saying. What James is saying is he is speaking to an understood people of God and he is calling them to be them. He is calling them to be who they say that they are. People who have been declared righteous and who live in that righteousness as sons of God. Right? People who are in the party. That's where James has them. James has the people in the party, swept up in the whirlwind of God's love, calling them to, in that whirlwind of God's love, love one another, and so show that they love, support, and know the heart of their father, who is throwing this party for them, who is so in love with them, who is so about them, and calling them into this. Because how you view yourself is how you will live. If you think of yourself as a thief, do you know what you will do? You will steal. If you identify yourself, if your picture of you is a liar, you will lie. If you define yourself as greedy, then you will be greedy, right? Your definition, your self-perspective will determine who you are. The older son defined himself as employed, So you know how he acted toward his dad whose heart was so big for him that he said, everything I have is yours. You are always with me. He just simply said, I just want you to be my boss. Frankly, having God as a boss can be somewhat easier, right? Just give me the list. Show me what I got to do to check it off. You want me to do this, 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 serve there, go here, talk like this, don't talk like this, drink this, don't drink that, eat this, don't eat that, dress like this, don't dress like that. Okay, let's get it all together. Oh, here's a group of people that has a different list. Well, I can't have anything to do with them, right? They'll screw up my work for God. You know, so we find other people that think exactly like us, and we might have one or two differences on our list, but pretty much your list matches my list, and we all agree together to be deceived, and then we, just, we exist together going, we're the church, we're the church, and God's saying, justified by works. You don't know my heart. You don't love and care and support the things that I love and care and invite you into. Who you say you are and how you're living are different. Because the way that God thinks of you is as a son. And when James is calling you to be justified by works, he is calling you to be justified by works like that. Right? In that you have been swept up in the whirlwind of God's love. And as someone soaked, saturated, changed by, transformed in God's love, 
Love just spins off of you in works of love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's love that's up for grabs in the story of the prodigal sons. It's love that's up for grabs in the book of James. Right? It's love that's up for grabs pretty much across the board when we look at the way that God calls us to live as his New Testament people. This is always about, will you love? Will you love me first? Will I be your first love? Will you love your neighbor as you love yourself? This is what James is going after, and he's calling us to a justification that who we say we are will be lived out in how we live because we are sons of God. What God is not saying is go out and work harder because my kingdom really needs your work. I don't know what I'll do without it. What he is saying is, yes, you are a carpenter. Go build. You're my son. I love you. I've given you gifts. I've given you calling. You're my daughter. I've given you gifts. I've given you calling. I've given you a way to live that is abundant life. Go be that. Go live that. And who you say you are and how it is that the fruit that's coming out of your life is these two things match. This person is justified in their declaration of who they say that they are. That's the beauty of God is that this is an identity thing. God is always about your core. He's always about the deepest parts of transforming you fully deep within. And that being good treasure stored up in a good tree that bears good fruit. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it is love that we find being continually up for grabs. Our role in this whole situation, to keep just the tree analogy, go one step further. In John 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Right? It's all about remaining. Remain in me and I will remain in you. If a branch remains in the vine, do you know what happens? It bears fruit. What Jesus does not tell us in John 15 is to go out and work really hard and bear fruit. He tells us to remain in the vine. A branch that remains bears fruit. A son who receives the family life of his father, who receives the heart of his father, is transformed by that love and lives that love. And so we live in the kingdom as people who love God and love one another. God, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the truth, the depths of what it means for us to be your people, to be transformed by you and to walk in you. Continue, God, to give us deep sight, deep experience of you as our Father. Now just continue to shower upon us your Father's heart. Grant us grace, God, that we might walk in love, swept up in the whirlwind of your love and walking in love toward our brothers and sisters. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God, keep us in this world that we live in, in the relationships that we have, in our places of work, family, education, fun, all the different stuff that we do and the people that we engage. God, keep us mindful of love and of the enemy's desire to destroy it and of our call to stand for it. God, keep us marked by love for one another, people who are truly who we say we are, people who are children of the King, sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
victorious. Thank you, God, for the wonder that is you. We rest in you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Go with God.